Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thank you so much for your faithful and worshipful singing. I want you to return to the passage that was read just a moment ago, Psalm 139, which will be our text for today. The title of the message, You Are Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. In the 1970s and the 1980s, Southeastern Seminary was a much different school than it is today. Uh, A clear evidence of this would have been the faculty's position on the issue of abortion. Virtually every faculty member of this institution at that particular time would have called themselves pro-choice, pro-abortion. Interestingly, there was an ethics professor who, of course, has a a particular interest in this issue who would share in class with his students that though he personally was pro-life, politically he was pro-choice. He said he simply found the idea of abortion yucky, And therefore, personally, he would not participate in it, but he did not think he had the right uh, to tell a woman what to do with that particular life growing inside of her. On one occasion in class, he was asked by some students, well, do you use the Bible to defend your personal pro-life position? And his response was, The Bible never addresses the issue of abortion. That is a very ignorant statement. It is simply not true. The fact of the matter is, time and time again, the Bible brings clarity to the fact that every single life, from the moment of conception to natural death, is deemed valuable in the sight of God. Every life from the moment of conception to natural death and into eternity bears the image of God. And yet, tragically, since 1973, more than 60 million babies, little boys and little girls, have been murdered through the Holocaust of abortion. If you are here this morning and you are under the age of 47, never lose sight of the fact that your parents legally, legally could have had you aborted and snuffed out your life. The Bible, again, addresses this particular issue in many ways and in many places, but perhaps no passage of Scripture does so more beautifully and elegantly then Psalm 139, a wonderful psalm written by King David. If you analyze the 24 verses in our English text, it's very easy to see that there are four stanzas or four movements to this particular psalm, uh, six verses each. What you see is also something of a composite psalm because there are in its elements of praise and thanksgiving, lament, confession, meditation, prayer, and as you see at the very end, even 
imprecation. There is an imprecatory stanza that begins at verse 19 and goes through the end of the passage. The word no in particular dominates this particular psalm occurring no less than seven times. And basically what the psalmist wants us to understand is four basic truths about our God. First of all, he tells us in verses 1 through 6, our God knows everything. He tells us secondly in verses 7 through 12 that our God is everywhere. Thirdly, particularly using the illustration of conception in the womb of a mother, the psalmist tells us that our God can do anything. And then finally, in the psalm of imprecation, he says, um, our God will deal with everyone. Because of time, I'll only address the first three of these today, although I would say in our particular day and age and context, uh, verses 19 through 24 probably have particular application for those who do not see every life from the moment of conception to natural death as valuable. Uh, in essence, they hate the truth of God's Word when He says, no, all of life is valuable in my sight, therefore all of life should be valuable in our sight as well. And so we're going to see as we walk through these verses, in particular verses 1 through 18, that David has a lot to say both about the greatness of our God, but also the importance and the sanctity of every life. And let me say this as we begin to move into the text. We are very clear as those who believe the Bible. We do not advocate what is called a quality of life ethic. We advocate what is called a sanctity of life ethic. Every human life, no exception, number one, bears the image of God, and therefore they are of eternal value and worth to the God who made them and the God who designed them. So let's look at, first of all, the first stanza, verses 1 through 6, where the Bible tells us that our God knows everything. And in particular, the psalmist, as he starts talking about the omniscience of God, highlights a number of aspects in terms of what God knows about you and me. And by the way, this is a deeply personal psalm. Some form of the pronoun I, my, or me occurs 40-plus times in Psalm 139. So the first thing that uh, David says is God knows my heart. Look at verse 1 and the latter part of verse 2. O Lord, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. Indeed, the end of verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. Charles Spurgeon said, the Lord knows us thoroughly as if he had examined us minutely and has pried into the secret corners of our being. He then adds, this infallible knowledge has always existed. In other words, God knows you better than you know yourself. After all, the Scriptures teach us that the heart is deceitful and wicked, and who can know it? Well, the answer is God can. And God knows everything about you, every thought you've ever had, uh, every emotion that you have ever felt. God knows you in that kind of intimate way. He knows your heart. But secondly, He knows your actions. He says there in verse 2, you know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. 
Indeed, verse 3 reinforces the truth of verse 2. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Yes, God knows your character, your heart, but God also knows your conduct. He knows you inside, and he knows you outside. And by the way, distance is no problem for our God. You discern my thoughts from afar. And so David recognizes that everything he does is put before the x-ray vision of our God. Uh, Sometimes when I am teaching the Word of God, I will use a hypothetical to try to help people understand the intimacy that should exist in your daily life between you and the Lord Jesus. And I will say, if the Lord Jesus were to appear to you today in the flesh, and he were to say to you, I'm going to spend the next week with you, For the next seven days, 24-7, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to do what you do. I'll read what you read. Uh, I'll listen to what you listen to. I'll watch what you watch. Now, I have a question. How many of you would live your life differently this coming week than you did last week? Now, here's the deal. If you are here today and you belong to Jesus Christ, He is your personal Lord and Savior, then He lives within you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. Where you go, He does go. What you participate in, you involve Him in. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. And so you are indeed intimately involving him in these things, and he knows where you are. He knows where you go. He knows what you think. He knows what you do. But thirdly, not only does he know your heart and your actions, he knows your words. Look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Even before you say it, God knows it. You may have an unguarded moment where you blurt out something, and you're like, well, I didn't think I was going to say that. I didn't know I was going to say that. Well, God did. In fact, he's always known that. There's nothing that comes out of your mouth that he did not see coming even before you said it. He knows your heart. He knows your actions. He knows your words. In essence, David says in verses 5 and 6, he knows every detail of your life. Verse 5. You hem me in. Uh, The idea is like a city under siege from all sides. God's in front of you and God's behind you. God's to the left, God's to the right. God's above you, God's below you. He has you hemmed in behind and before. But that should not discourage you. It should bless you because you lay your hand upon me. The idea is God is intimately and deeply and personally involved in your life, in the details of what is going on. Never think that in your life the little details don't matter to God. They do. Never think that when you're involved in certain kinds of things, God is somehow deistic and he's distant and removed and he's not paying attention. No, 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 no. He's paying intimate attention to you every single day of your life. David then reflects upon this, and he says, I have to confess, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I think the idea is something like, I just can't go there. Uh, Your knowledge, your omniscience, it is something that I cannot even begin 
to grasp. Now, let me be clear. Theologians talk about the exhaustive uh, omniscience of God, the exhaustive knowledge of God. And what we mean by that is something like this. God knows everything, past, present, and future. Uh, Open theism is wrong. In fact, I think it's a heresy. Uh, The process theologians were wrong when they talked about a God who is growing and involving and learning with his creation. No, God knows everything. He always has known everything, past, present, and future. Not only that, God knows everything actual and uh, potential. In other words, God never has an aha moment. God never has a situation where he says, well, you know, goodness gracious, I did not see that coming. Furthermore, hear me well now, because I think this particularly applies to the issue of the sanctity of life. God has what I call, using a colloquial phrase, what-if knowledge. He has what-if knowledge. In other words, take your life. He knows what would have happened had when you came to a particular fork in the road, you went this way instead of this way. He has that knowledge. Furthermore, I believe God has knowledge of all those babies that have been aborted. What if they had been allowed to be born? What if they had been allowed to grow and develop? He knows what would have happened had those lives been allowed to continue. A.W. Tozer says it very, very well. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything nor anyone. God knows everything. But then secondly, in stanza 2, verses 7 through 12, the Bible says that God is everywhere. If stanza 1 through 6 focuses, or verses 1 through 6 focus on God's omniscience, these verses focus particularly on God's omnipresence, the fact that not only does he know everything, he is everywhere present. Now think about that before we walk into these verses. Have you ever realized that God never goes anywhere? God never goes anywhere. He's already there. He's everywhere. And that's a wonderful, by the way, promise to our missionaries. When you go across the world to an unengaged or unreached people group, that to that point, not only have they never heard uh, the name of Jesus, they've never even heard any of God's wonderful revelation. And you wonder, well, I'm going to a people where God is not present. That's incorrect. He may not be present in their mind, but he's there. And in fact, I think he's been waiting probably quite a while for some of us to get there to tell them about him. And so when you go, never think in this hard, difficult, out-of-the-way place, my God is not there. He's always been there. And in many cases, I believe he's been waiting for us to arrive. Now, God is everywhere, and the psalmist breaks this down into three very simple ideas. He says, first of all, God is with me above or below, verse 7. He uses two rhetorical questions here that have a very clear anticipated answer. Where shall I go from your spirit? Answer, nowhere. 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer again is nowhere. Let me be precise. If I ascend to heaven, well, you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there as well. So it doesn't matter where you go once you exit this life. God is there in heaven. God is there in hell. Sometimes people say, well, God is not present in hell. Oh, he's there. It's just that unbelievers are unaware of his comforting presence. But there's no place in all of reality that our God is not there. And he's always been there. And so God is above me. God is below me. But secondly, God is with me in the east or the west. And again, in beautiful poetic language, verse 9 if I take the wings of the morning, if I go east where the sun rises, or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Uh, You go west to the, the Mediterranean from Israel's perspective. If I go in either place, even there, your hand shall lead me, you'll direct me, and furthermore, your hand shall hold me. You will protect me. So up or down, east or west, I might add north or south, doesn't matter. God is there with you, and God is there protecting you. But thirdly, God is also with me in the dark or in the light. Look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Well, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night, well, it is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. In other words, God doesn't have difficulty seeing in the dark, does he? Sometimes we think, oh, I can go hide somewhere in a dark place and uh, they won't find me. And you may be able to hide from me or from a friend or a family member. Maybe you're even able to hide from your enemy, but you're not able to hide from God. God not only comprehends time, he comprehends space, he comprehends light. And God sees you wherever you may go. There is no hiding from this God. You say, how do you know that? Well, just ask Adam and Eve. Just ask Jonah. What an idiot. I mean, I I love him because he reminds me so much of myself. I mean, you read the book of Jonah. His theology is spot on. He, He knows who God is. And yet he tries to hide and run away from God. What a fool. By the way, Could that be you today, trying to run and hide from God? You say, wait, 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 Danny, now hold on. I'm at the college at Southeastern. I'm at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm here preparing for the ministry. How could I be hiding from God? Well, some of you may be here preparing for ministry, but you're preparing for ministry on your terms, not God's. You're here and you're more than happy to serve the Lord as long as it fits into your comfortable lifestyle. You're more than happy to serve the Lord as long as you get to go back and serve near mom and dad from your home state or your home city. You put conditions on how you serve God. You put parameters on where you will serve God. And in a real sense, you can give the air of being sold out to God and you're nothing more than a liar. trying to hide from him, even in a place like Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I got news for you. The Bible's crystal clear. You you can run, but you cannot hide from this omnipresent, omniscient God. 
C.S. Lewis said it very, very well. We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. That's so good. We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And yes, God knows everything, and God is everywhere. But now number three, God can do anything. Omniscience and omnipresence are now wedded to omnipotence in stanza three. I believe in the most intimate, personal illustration that David could have used. That is our development in the womb of our mother. These verses provide a crystal clear biblical perspective, I believe, on the tragedy of abortion. And indeed, it makes it clear that life is sacred from the moment of conception to our final breath. God is pro-life. And by the way, God is pro-life comprehensively. He's not just pro-life for the baby, boy, or girl in the womb of his or her mother. He is comprehensively pro-life. And you see, that's where losing this ethic causes us to devolve into all sorts of atrocities. Yesterday, there was a celebration around the world of the liberation of the Jews from Auschwitz. I was at Auschwitz last uh, September. Had a chance to go there to that particular concentration camp in Birkenau, which is only about two and a half miles away, which is actually where the death camp was. That's where the ovens were. That's where they delivered. You've ever seen uh, uh, on a movie screen, perhaps you've seen Schindler's List. Uh, They filmed it there in Poland. And when the train comes in over the archway, that's still there. And they would pull the train in, unload the Jews, and in most cases, march them immediately to the gas chambers and then to the crematoriums where they would burn them. How in the world could six million Jews in anyone's right mind be treated in that kind of a way? Well, the answer is simple. Hitler saw them as subhuman. He did not see them as image bearers of God. He did not see their lives as sacred. Think about our own Holocaust in America in terms of our history, slavery. I just recently completed reading the book by James Cone, The Lynching Tree. There are many things about James Cone's theology that I would strongly reject and people that say that I don't are liars. I reject much of his theology. I don't think he thought well and clearly theologically in a number of areas, but that book will move you to reflect upon the fact that here in America, we lynched more than 5,000 men, women, and sometimes teenage boys and girls. And the church sat back for the most part in the north and the south and said virtually nothing. How could you do that? How could you take a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, put a noose around their neck, string them up, and then riddle their body with bullets, and then go up afterwards and castrate them, cut off toes, cut off fingers as souvenirs? How could you do that? The answer is, they're not human. Or at best, they're subhuman. They certainly 
don't bear the image of God and we would never think in the category that from the moment of their conception to their natural death, God is intimately concerned about their life. Now that's how we got there in the past and that's why we are where we are today in the present. The psalmist, though, makes it crystal clear how valuable indeed is each life, made so by the intricate involvement of God as he partners with your dad and your mom to bring your life into existence and then to grow you in the womb of your mother. First of all, he tells us in verses 13 through 15, the Lord formed my body. Look at what he says there. For you formed my inward parts. The word for connects us back to the argument of verses 11 and 12. I think in particular the darkness idea. In other words, even the darkness is not dark to you. You see what goes on in the darkness. Well, let's take a place that's dark, the womb of the mother. So you formed me in that dark place. You formed my inward parts. In fact, you knitted my me together in my mother's womb and david reflecting upon that just simply marvels and says i I praise you for i am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows this very well when david reflects upon how god made him and knit him together in the womb of his mother he can only step back in amazement and say god what you do is wonderful i praise you for i am fearfully and wonderfully made but then he says in verse 15 my frame it was not hidden from you when i was made in secret intricately woven and he takes us back to the creation of Adam in Genesis 2, verse 7. Yes, he's using poetic language to talk about what's going on inside the womb of a mother, but the language is not accidental. I am intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. The message says it this way. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something and chip mcdaniel of our faculty notes that the hebrew word could be translated embroidered and that the other eight times the verb is used in the old testament it describes the needlework in the tabernacle and clothing described in the exodus and so in beautiful poetic language he tells us god looks into the womb of your mother and he is intricately like a beautiful tapestry weaving you together. Even with 4D sonograms, we cannot take note of what our God is doing moment by moment as he knits you and brings you to growth in preparation for your delivery. Yes, the Lord formed your body, but also, he says, the Lord foreordained my life. Look at what he says in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, But in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, even when I wasn't much, I was still something to you. In fact, you pre-recorded and set out in advance all of my days. God wrote all the details of my life in his book, and he fashioned and formed all the days of my life when none of them yet existed. 
God had a plan for David. God had a plan for his son. And God has a plan for you and for me in terms of the length of our lives and the specifics of our lives. Now, stay with me here. Sometimes maybe you're like me and you whine about how God made you. I do. In my dream world, I was always going to be six foot five. I was going to weigh 245 pounds, and I was going to run a 4240. I'd been a bad boy. Oh, and I would have had a 48-inch vertical too, so I'd be hanging my rims on the rim, okay? But no, God said, eh, I'm going to make Danny Aiken five, nine and a half. And as he gets older, he's going to shrink down to five, eight. I know I shouldn't say this, but that really sucks. I mean, it, it just does. And um, in my best days, I barely broke five seconds in the 40, and um, I can't jump. But for me to complain about that is, in essence, say, well, God, you made a mistake. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't make mistakes, and he didn't make a mistake when he made you exactly the way that he did. I wish God had made me smarter. You say, well, you're a president of a seminary. Yeah, but I made 870 on the SAT the first time, 910 the second time. That's not rocket science material, I can guarantee you. You say, well, why do you think he did that? Well, I know in part he did it to keep me humble. I never think I'm the smartest person in the room. I just don't because I know better. And yet I'm grateful that God made me the way he did because no one loves me like he does. And God is a wonderful God who loves diversity and he loves uniqueness and he made you exactly the way he wanted you to be and he's mapped out your life day by day, moment by moment. No surprises to God. It's already all written in his book. That is the kind of meticulous detail that our God went to when he made you. And so David says in verse 17 and 18, how precious to me then are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I wrote down a personal paraphrase of what I think David is saying here, and here's how I put it. Your thinking of me down to the last detail is so very precious to me, my God. The vastness and greatness of their total is so great that they are more than every grain of sand on the earth. Trying to count them all exhausts me, and so I just simply fall asleep. Yet when I wake, you are there, just like you are every day of my life. By the way, some Bible teachers think that that last phrase in verse 18 may not be talking about our natural sleep and awakening, but it may be talking about what takes place when we die. You know, it's interesting in the Bible, the death of Christians are often referred to with the beautiful imagery of sleep. That, by the way, that imagery is never applied to an unbeliever. But many times the Bible says of the Christian they fell asleep. Why does it use that imagery? Because for the Christian, to die is to simply fall asleep in the very next moment to wake up in the presence of Jesus. That's why the Bible says to be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. 
And so maybe he has this in view. I don't know. So let me bring my message to a close by just making very quickly a number of practical observations from this text is takeaways. Number one, never forget even before you were conceived in your mother's womb, the Lord had planned your size, your shape, and the specific makeup of your body and your soul with the precision of a skilled artisan. He made you exactly as you are for his purposes and his glory. Number two, from the moment of conception and throughout the entirety of your life, each and every day was ordained and planned by him and written down in his book for each of us. It's interesting to note or important to note this is how the father planned the life of his son. And this is how he planned the life of each one of you. Number three, from the moment we are conceived to the last breath of life, there is no such thing. Now hear me, there is no such thing as fate, fortune, luck, or coincidence. Those things do not exist. The sovereign God who made us is the sovereign God who planned out our life for us. He planned our beginning, he planned our end, and he planned everything in between. Number four, the fact that we have been made and ordained by this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God to remind us that nothing we do is hidden from him and nothing we can do ultimately can thwart his plan. Finally, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by an awesome and wonderful God. He made me, he knows me, and he will always be with me. Reflect on this as I close. 2,000 years ago, a mother named Mary conceived a baby in an unplanned, unexpected pregnancy. But in her womb, the Holy Spirit knit together beautifully and wonderfully a baby boy who would be the Savior of the world. That baby boy came into this world to live and die as God planned exactly to the very last detail. You see, Jesus is so pro-life. He was willing to give his life for every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever been conceived. That alone should prove to all of us that every life is valuable. From the womb to the tomb, indeed for all of eternity. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this magnificent psalm that teaches us about how wonderful is our God and how valuable is every life that he has created. Lord, if you are that pro-life, we must be the same. And Lord, help us to hold that conviction firmly, without equivocation, uh, without intimidation, but Lord, help us to hold that view kindly, lovingly, graciously. And Lord, it is possible that even today that among this student body there's someone here that has been involved in the tragedy of abortion. And Lord, they are wounded and scarred by it. Help them to understand that there is free and full forgiveness through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help them understand that you can bring healing to their heart and healing to their soul because you are that great, that kind of great God and great and wonderful Father. Lord, help us then to be strong in our stand, but to also be gracious in our ministry. 
that indeed people will see us and know they are indeed committed to the sanctity and the value of every human life, not just in the womb, but every step of the way until they leave this life. So, Lord, thank you for loving us in that kind of a way. Help us to go and do likewise for your glory. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.